0: This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan.
1: And I'm Dana Duncan.
0: Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the quiet man currently streaming at Prime Video. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be covering the prophetic comedy Idiocracy, directed by Mike Judge for April Fool's Day. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on VOD before next week's show. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com to subscribe, comment, or ask a question about the show. Finally, we've moved the schedule around a bit in the first half of this year, but we are still planning our schedule to finish the spring and into the summer, including a tiebreaker show, a revisit, and another list episode as well as much, much more. So, get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, by email, or on our website to let us know exactly what you'd like us to cover this year. With that, Dad, this is our second John Ford episode and the one you suggested for St. Patrick's Day. What was your relationship to this movie?
1: i'm aware that it was made okay that's it i have no other relationship so you more or less tangentially
0: knew of this movie
1: okay it's just one of these movies that is on my list that i should watch because it was one john ford he won best director for it and uh, also has some of my other favorite actors or character actors such as ward bond and um And I knew this was a different role for John Wayne for the most part. It wasn't a Western. And so it was one of those films that I always wanted to watch, but I never made a point of doing. So I thought, well, why not?
0: Yeah, I oddly realized something in the course of this, not necessarily for this movie or that it has a strong connection with this movie, but I realized about myself this week that I really... Enjoy two things about the show, or two things that really get me excited. One, sharing a favorite movie of mine with the audience, and hopefully by my enthusiasm, getting them to understand why I love the movie, maybe try it. And I know you've expressed that at different times throughout the course of the show. But the other one is this is an avenue for us to explore some new movies. And I've been introduced to several over the course of time. This has given me a kind of excuse, if you will, but more or less a reason to try out new movies or new classics. And this is one of them for me. I mean, I had never seen this movie. Uh, I am not familiar with a ton of John Ford's work, but this is one that was new, and I, I just appreciated at least being able to try on a new hat, more or less. So as we do each week, let's jump into the basic plot summary and recognition Uh, Just to give some context to everybody in the audience for this movie, Dad, you have your plot summary ready?
1: Yes, I do. Sean Thornton has returned from America to reclaim his homestead and escape his past. Thornton played by John Wayne. Soon as I is caught by Mary-Kate Danaher, a beautiful, fiery redhead, who is the younger sister of an ill-tempered Red Will Danaher. The riotous relationship that forms between Sean and Mary Kate soon lead to their engagement in marriage, only to have continued problems with Will Danaher over Mary Kate's
0: dowry. This movie was nominated for Best Picture in 1952, supporting actor Victor McLaughlin, sound, original screenplay, and art direction. The Quiet Man won the Academy Award for Best Director for John Ford, his fourth, Aimed for Best Cinematography. In 2013, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Did you know? At the film's conclusion, after the credits, we see Kate and Sean standing in their garden waving goodbye. Maureen O'Hara turns to John Wayne and whispers something in his ear, evoking a priceless reaction from Wayne. What was said was only known to O'Hara, Wayne, and director John Ford. In exchange for saying this unscripted bit of text, O'Hara insisted that the exact line never be disclosed by any involved parties. In her memoirs, she says that she refused to say the line at first, as she couldn't possibly say that to the Duke. But Ford insisted, claiming he needed a genuine shock reaction from Wayne. The line remains a mystery to this day. This is one of the few Hollywood films in which Gaelic, the native Irish language, is spoken. In the scene where John Wayne discovers Maureen O'Hara in his cottage, the wind whipped her hair so ferociously around her face she kept squinting. John Ford screamed at her in the strongest language to open her eyes. What would a bald-headed son of a bitch know about hair lashing across his eyeballs she shot back? This was a significant departure for Republic Pictures, which specialized in low-budget westerns, comedies, and war pictures. It was the company's first and only film to receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. And finally, Barry Fitzgerald, who plays the character of Roman Catholic Mickalene O'G Flynn and Arthur Shields, who played the Protestant vicar Cyril Snuffy Playfair, were brothers actually in real life. They also appeared together in director John Ford's The Long Voyage Home from 1940. They were both Protestants born in Dublin, Ireland. Shields was the family name. The Oscar winner Fitzgerald, who was nearly 80 years older than his brother, was born William Joseph Shields. So that brings us to what is this movie about slash the elevator pitch? Do you want
1: to go first? A uh, man carrying baggage has to come to terms with his past. So I think that is the takeaway if you
0: only take it from the perspective of Wayne's character. And I think that's the part that most people identify easily. I expanded on it a little bit because I see Wayne and O'Hara as somewhat equals. That they're both incredibly damaged people with unrealized dreams and
1: an abundance of pride. Okay, I can see that, I guess. I'm, I I tried to figure out how I would... This wasn't exactly an easy one to
0: encapsulate in an elevator pitch.
1: I know. It, it's, it's really a story. It, it's a story of Ireland itself and the culture of Ireland. And it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess the term or the, the, the classic story of The misfit within the the location, whether it's you're talking about the Beverly Hillbillies or you're talking about uh, Green Acres, any of those things where it's city person in the country, country person in the city. Here you have an American who's Irish and has Irish roots, but he's coming back and he has all of the cultural norms of an American and uh, doesn't understand the Irish culture.
0: I think the technical term I would use for that is fish out of water. Okay. I think that's the, the primary Hollywood term for this type of
1: movie. I think it's a genre unto itself. It's understandable, I guess. Uh, I guess when you're talking about it that way, yes, it makes some sense. It's, But it's, again, that's it's the cultural interplay. It's by putting... Wayne in that position it only emphasizes the cultural aspects of ireland that are unique
0: well i think the other aspect of this that isn't really discussed it's never truly mentioned it's kind of only half alluded to and i think you have to get it through a couple of references i think this movie is supposed to have taken place in the 1920s 1930s era I wouldn't say it has a specific year on it, but so this more or less was kind of a, I guess, by what we would call period piece, at least that it was throwing back to a different time. Because even by the modern standards and American culture, they make a lot of references to the fact that Americans would treat things differently than the fairly conservative Irish Catholic way. This seems kind of post-World War I era. Well, that was the heyday of boxing. So let's dip into best performance. Uh, Do you want to go first?
1: Yes. The obvious one that most people would end up picking would be John Wayne. I disagree. I'm going with Maureen O'Hara. I thought she had the more difficult job. She had to come across both as... Fiery but yet delicate. There were a lot of nuances in her character. And so I thought she did the better job of anybody or the best job of anybody really in the film, uh portraying the wide variety and the wide aspects of the character's emotions and personality.
0: I completely agree. She was my best performer as well. I have a lot of problems with Wayne's character, which we'll get to, I'm sure, in the scoring. But in the face of that, she has to be the character that probably ages the best, at least from the main characters. Because she shows probably more of a resilience as a female lead than most were depicted at the time. And while I do have and take issue a little bit with the nature of her feeling like she needed to rely on the dowry and her own fortune and the rest of that... Even that stroke of it was she wanted to bring something of herself, her property, and what she could into some type of partnership, as opposed to being property herself. And so even that I take as somewhat of a advanced form, even for 1952, depicting how the nineteen twenties conservative Ireland would have been. And it wasn't an easy job to oppose the rather Uh, I'll even say violent nature of John Wayne's character, who just was quiet until he erupted in sheer physical and menacing force.
1: But not to be
0: bowed under by that presence.
1: Uh, Yes, the uh, 2021 eyeglasses that you have as a different generation male.
0: Oh, yeah. We're going to have a long discussion, I'm sure, on that coming up. But uh, best secondary performance for me. I think you'll go in a different direction, but you'll appreciate mine. I went with Ward Bond. I almost would have gone with him for most charismatic, but I went a little bit different direction than somebody else that I want to give some credit and some discussion to. So I went with him for best secondary. He just disappears into every role. Like, even this, I thought he did an excellent job at creating an accent that didn't seem forced, didn't seem like a caricature, and being able to complement the part without becoming bigger than the part. And he was some bit of a comedic relief, both in the narration as well as the part that he actually played. So I just loved his ability to pop in, pop out, and be able to do a scene well without necessarily uh having to own the scene that's an an incredibly unique
1: skill i i can see your point and i would agree that ward bond did a very good job i went a little differently with my choice i did john ford one of the things that i tend to do is i do my own research on stuff and um I thought this was a great opportunity for me to do some research on John Ford. So Scott Iman uh, wrote a biography a few years ago on John Ford. I purchased a copy and I was able to pour through the couple of chapters in that biography about the making of this film. And just things that John Ford did with some level of spontaneity in order to add to the film. Uh, There's a scene in there where John Wayne is walking towards the rail station. And there's a flock of geese. That was not planned. It's just they happened to be filming it. Ford saw this flock of geese, set up the camera, and had Wayne walk through it so that it had the effect of the geese flying because it just seemed to – his character seemed to be on a mission that was disruptive to wildlife. Uh, And so they thought that was a great thing. So it's little nuances of that um, that I thought – made the film and I can understand why having watched it, he got his fourth best director award.
0: All right. My most charismatic went to Barry Fitzgerald. And part of the reason that it did is he's in another movie that I enjoyed and I enjoyed seeing him in. And so to get to have a relationship with him in this movie as well was just enjoyable overall. I, I, Don't know if you've seen the movie. It's uh, Going My Way. It was the Best Picture winner from 1944 with Bing Crosby. And uh, you know what? I, I might have to look that up. I might have my information wrong on the year. But either way, he was the older priest in Crosby's parish and was the guy that needed to be kind of brought into the modern day. he was playing this crusty character who had to slowly be brought out of his shell, but becomes an endearing character because he's kind of the old guard type of thing, and you have some level of not only sympathy, but um, warmth towards him for that. Like, he aged gracefully during the course of the movie as opposed to just being a denying force. Anyway, I I just appreciated for—because he was a— almost completely different character, and yet not entirely. He was kind of the conservative force that kept certain things together, but he was kind of the glue guy to this movie. He held a lot of the scenes between Maureen O'Hara and John Wayne together. He kind of spoke in between the lines of a lot of what was going on with the action of the movie. He was just kind of a lovely person. Through, through the course of the movie, and more than anybody else, he just had that certain twinkle about him that every time he was on screen, you'd get kind of a, a smile, more or less. And so I know I gravitate towards the more positive charisma figures than you have, at least in recent episodes, but uh,
1: this is one for me. So, yes, and I have seen the film, and Bing Crosby does the famous singing to him as he's in bed. Like a little lullaby to put him to sleep in the film. So, yes. It's just a fun, lovely, classic movie. I realized also
0: during the course of this, although it was really only for that first hour of the movie, but how much I enjoy watching old classic movies because they just have a certain innocence to them by comparison to some of the modern ones which seem to buckle under the weight of all the things that they supposedly have to carry all the complications, these ones don't seem to have the same stigma attached or that they're obeying the same forces.
1: And as far as the year, I think you may be off by one year because in the uh, infamous scene of George Bailey running through the town in It's a Wonderful Life, on the marquee is Bing Crosby in uh, Going My Way. So I looked it up, and
0: I am not, in fact, wrong. It is 1944.
1: So it might have been released in December type of thing like they do now, and then you know, they were still showing it into the spring or winter of 45. In fact, since we
0: have discussed it a bunch, if you have not seen the movie uh, and are interested in watching it, because it is just kind of a wholesome, fun movie, I'm pretty sure that it's on Peacock right now. It might even be on the free version. Uh, of peacock so that you can go watch it if you wish all right who was your most charismatic ireland
1: interesting okay because ireland is a character in this film yeah the landscape the culture the sociology that was in in uh built within the film sure um there was uh, the, the cinematography was beautiful um, it showed Ireland in a very positive light and, um, uh, I came around or came through this again, renewing my desire to someday go to Ireland.
0: Yeah, I definitely understand what you mean. I might hone it in a little bit and say free, but I'm not sure if that's a real place. I actually didn't even look that up. <laughs> probably should have. Uh, my guess is it probably is, but who knows? So but I, I definitely get what you said. So let's go over to best scene. This one was a little bit more limited to me because there are scenes that are noteworthy that I don't feel like nominating for best scene. So, But one that struck me, and I thought it was remarkable for the way it looked, because this is 24, 25 years ahead of uh, another movie that we've already covered. I think it was our third episode, Rocky is the boxing cutaway. You look at how they stand John Wayne in that, that scene with the boxing shorts and the gloves and the rest of that, and it looks like a lot of modern boxer movies. Now, I'm not familiar with a lot of boxing movies up to this point. I went and looked. There were actually a bunch of them, and I'm not sure if they all looked this way, but that scene really looked good. Like That, that could have been pulled from uh, the late or mid-'60s and probably been... Just as good. So I think that that particular cutaway and the emotions behind it, where they really hint at it, they don't expressly uh, say it till later in the film that John Wayne's character killed uh, the other man and why he's all broken up about it. In fact, I think they probably could have expounded on it more for the buildup that they had earlier in the film. But it's one scene that caught me. I'm like, especially for when it happened. That they kind of did this full cutaway as a kind of, I don't want to say like a bridge in a song, but it, it's kind of similar that you just have this side moment to kind of explain this other part of the film and what's going on and give us some background and context. And I just thought it was beautifully done. It was very subtle without having to be overpowering. And so I appreciated what they did on in that scene.
1: I had the opening scene as one of the better scenes because it really set up the film. The train pulls into the station, he asks some questions, and pretty soon half the town is there arguing. And it's to the point where he's just standing there, (laughs) all of a sudden his bags get taken and he's like, oh, I guess I'm leaving. And they continue to argue as he's uh, getting taken to the homestead property and And uh, it it just kind of set up that things were, we're not in Kansas anymore type of attitude. And so I thought that scene set up the film for the most part. Well, even in the way that the train platform people
0: kind of follow him for a while after he starts trying to leave, I think that was indicative of later portions of the film and the kind of culture that uh, was exuded in other portions. All right, uh, the next one I went with was the ending fight. This is not my favorite scene, but it's something that I'm not really sure how to exactly feel about. It's, tone expresses humor, and <laughs> I think that you come to appreciate and grow more fondly of Sean Thornton and Red Will, but it's kind of a goofy scene with them just constantly hitting each other, then going into the bar, then fighting across town. And I I mean, all of the things that kind of went into it, it, it's just kind of a odd sequence, but it's somehow endearing despite its age and how, I guess you would say that something of the same nature today would be uh, viewed much differently.
1: Uh, Yes, I know. But that's – so much of the reputation of the Irish is exactly that, hard drinking and hard fighting.
0: Well, and Bostonians by extension.
1: Well, yes. So, you know, I, I, I thought that that scene was well done. I thought it really portrayed a time that uh, that was not only acceptable but almost expected. It's something that I have a hard
0: time relating to because fisticuffs is just not generally accepted anywhere at this point. <laughs> it's like a, a social
1: practice. Uh, yeah, I understand. We even, even my generation differs from yours. You, you stood your ground a lot. I made a comment today. I mean, that was my philosophy being a shorter guy. My philosophy was always... The more anybody attacked me, I always took two steps closer because I always win if I do, because either they're hitting a much smaller guy or they back down.
0: Yeah, I've seen you actually do that in real life, so it's it's not a joke by any stretch. But what was your next nominee?
1: I I really enjoyed the scene with uh, Maureen O'Hara and Ward Bond, him trying to catch the fish. Yep. I thought that was a great scene. It kind of endeared both of them in their own ways of uh, trying to get that the big fish in, and and he's trying, he's doing fly fishing from the shore, which I've never seen, but apparently you can do, and um, that's what he was trying to do, was trying to get that. I think it was a salmon, or was it? Yeah, he crow?
0: said it was specifically a salmon.
1: Okay, so uh, I just liked that scene, and I thought it it gave. It opened your eyes to both of the characters and their relationship. Well, it's
0: an interplay. You assume that, as for a priest, they're going to be most consumed with what their parishioners are doing and their overall health as far as emotionally, physically, uh, etc., psychologically, And he is definitely more invested in catching this fish he's apparently been after for 10 years. But he'll listen to her problems so long as it doesn't interfere with his fishing. And that plays up the humor of that scene. It was my nominee for favorite. So the only other scene I had to uh, nominate was the negotiation early on in the movie where John Wayne or Sean Thornton is trying to buy Whitemore. And I just like the interplay of that scene and how well it worked because that's a really difficult scene as far as acting to be able to act off of with the amount of lines that go back and forth where it's short, choppy lines and be able to pull off successfully. So I appreciated the acting job that Victor McLaughlin and then the woman who played Widow to Lane were able to pull off, but in the concept of John Wayne being somewhat John Wayne, the movie star at that point, and pulling it off successfully because they're again, they're going back and forth, you know, uh, 600 pounds, 700 pounds. I'll give it to you for free. No, no, no. I think you said this. And being able to do that whole interplay, I they must have had some chemistry together in order to make that work because that's the
1: only thing I could say. Her name is Mildred uh, Natwick. Okay. And uh, yes, in actuality, um, there's a piece or a a couple of paragraphs in uh, Iman's book, and I never thought about this until I read this, you know, how directors will a lot of times use the same actors over and over again. And it's not by just the fact that the director likes the actors necessarily, it's that films become a community. And the relationship and the comfort level with each other is a big factor in creating a good film. In the old days when they had the studio system, you know, you had a group of actors who were always in the same studio. I mean, the number of films that Ward Bond, Maureen O'Hara, John Wayne all acted in at the same time is uh, pretty lengthy. I think it was five or six and some of the character actors also that uh, were utilized, so they knew each other, and so they had a relationship. You didn't have to create it from scratch, and I think that really shows in that scene. And I do con or uh, agree with you that's a good scene. The one scene that I would add though is the scene with the deception, where they make the plan that they're going to lie to Will uh, Danaher about uh, in order to get uh, the widow. He needs to let Marino O'Hara go. And so it's a point of deception. You can see the deception going. And uh, I, I just find it too or interesting that the deception is pulled off by the, the minister and by the priest. Pretty much.
0: All right. So I gave my favorite already, but what was your favorite scene? I
1: guess I like the deception scene because I think that that. All's fair in love and war, and I think to some extent that's exactly what comes across in that film. It's just an endearing scene to me. And having some good friends who are ministers, um, I can certainly (laughs) see (laughs) how uh, uh, you can utilize the position for uh, some level of someone else's personal uh, gain. But
0: uh, most indelible moment. I don't think you can really do anything else. If you've seen this movie, you know exactly what we're going to talk about. It's the um, march from the train platform. (laughs) That's the best way I could put it without making it sound too terrible. And I hope you have watched this movie up to this point, but I really don't need to go into it before we get into the whole scoring system. You just know it exactly when you've seen it. It's about a five-minute sequence through the course of the end of the movie, and it's really what
1: sets up the final act. And while we're watching it, because I watched it with your mom and grandmother, and I looked at this and I said, oh, Tom's going to have kittens. Yeah, just a few. Your mother took it in good nature and thought it was funny. Because she understood. I said, so in other words, I could do that with you. And I got her tongue sticking out at me and like, uh no. <laughs> uh, so No,
0: I, I, I think um you, you might have a few um authorities showing up at your door. He wasn't abusive. <laughs> wasn't abusive he literally dragged her by her collar all right anyway most indelible moment over uh let's take a quick break before i have my um head explode for the scene that we're about to talk about we'll be right back and now i want to tell you about anchor if you haven't heard about anchor it's the easiest way to make a podcast let me explain It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. All right, welcome back everyone. Before we get into best lines, Dad, did we lose anyone this week?
1: Uh yes. Uh Yafit Koto Passed away uh, a couple of days ago. For those of you who uh, are unfamiliar with him, such as your mother, (laughs) um, he was in one of the films we uh, reviewed, uh, Aliens. He's also probably... Aliens, excuse me. Just because the films could have been confused, so I just wanted to
0: make that correction.
1: He's probably best known for playing the villain in the 1973 James Bond film, Live and Let Die. Yes, where he was technically playing two parts, but it was really one. The other one is he did Midnight Run, uh, playing an FBI agent opposite Robin, or Robert De Niro in that uh, film. And uh, he had a very distinguished career. I, I I knew that he was in a lot of different things. It wasn't until I actually started uh, looking into it that I realized he probably was in 70 pictures. Not all of them big parts, but, I mean, he was in a, just a lot of films and uh, had decent parts. Not and, uh, and then transitioned later in his career as he aged into television and did a lot of different things on television. Uh, apparently, he spent his last years living in Manila and okay. uh, passed away on uh, uh, on uh, March 15th. Yeah, he was 81. His wife announced his death, but did not er- announce a cause of death. I'm pretty sure that
0: I think he was my most uh, charismatic award recipient for when we did Alien uh, back with our uh, previous guest, Rob Conlon, uh, for that movie. I think that's episode 38 if you want to check that out. Uh, I do remember him a lot, and I think I nominated him partially for his work previously in Live and Let Die, but he just had an energetic smile. He was somebody I remembered clearly because Live and Let Die, to me, is the best Roger Moore film by far, and uh, it was just, I enjoyed when I saw him in a movie, so catching him in a couple of the other ones that he might have been in uh, as we go through more uh, of these uh, diverse films. I'll be glad to see him, but uh, unfortunately, sorry to see that he passed away. So, All right, best lines. Do you want to go first, or do you want to let me? Go ahead. This wasn't a terribly quotable film, so I only have a few, but Will Danaher. He'll regret it till his dying day, if he ever lives that long.
1: Father uh, Peter Lonigan, Ward Bond. Ah, yes, I knew your people, Sean. Your grandfather, he died in Australia in a penal colony. And your father, he was a good man, too. Uh, Mary Kate Donner, could you use a little water in your whiskey? Mickalene, when I
0: drink whiskey, I drink whiskey. And when I drink water, I drink water.
1: I had that as my next, as I, it's not, it's Sit not Irish whiskey. Juice. Yes, it's not Irish whiskey. It's not scotch. It's bourbon but whiskey is what whiskey does dad juice yes mary kate danaher i have a fearful temper and you might as well know it uh, about it now instead of finding out about it later we danaher's are fighting people i can think of a lot of things i'd rather do to one of the danaher's as danaher
0: And I I feel weird and pretty much dirty all over for nominating this one. But I did laugh at it and then felt terrible about it. Sir, sir, here's a good stick to beat the lovely lady. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Do you have any others?
1: uh no those were the the ones i had that i i liked i mean there were other lines but these are the ones that i liked i'm out too so you want to move to the stanley rubric sure
0: all right legacy i'll let you go first what did you have down
1: Uh, i went with a uh an eight i mean it it one, John Ford a Best Director. It, uh, it portrayed Ireland in a very positive light. It was a, another long line of collaboration between John Wayne and uh, John Ford. Uh, in fact, in this film, several of the kids who were extras were John Wayne's children. Uh, Patrick Wayne, his son, John Ford was his godfather. And so he always made sure Patrick Wayne had scenes with lines. Uh, I didn't pay attention real close to see it until afterwards when I did some research and found out that's what it was going on. Or, so that's my number, I guess. I had a three. Wow. So first
0: off, you and I had never seen this film. I had barely, if ever, heard of it. It was just kind of one of those John Wayne movies that, you know, there are a lot of John Wayne movies I've never seen. And it was just kind of one of the estranged ones on his catalog. The only thing you pitched this as was, uh, I said, oh, we should try and do one for St. Patrick's Day. Okay, let's do The Quiet Man. That was your pitch. It wasn't that, like, this was a really great film or that it had any great people necessarily in it outside of John Wayne or that it was directed by John Ford. I'm honestly not sure how it got into the national registry. I'd have to look up which year it was. I would guess that it was earlier on, because I think if, again, you applied some level of modern sensitivity to it, there might be a lot different feelings, but it won a couple of awards. And I think the biggest legacy for this is it won John Ford, his fourth best director, making him the most recognized best director at the Oscars ever ever. I don't think that will ever be topped because it's very rare for somebody to get two best directors at this point, let alone to be able to get four or five. It's not like we're going to get a Meryl Streep of directing anytime soon.
1: Okay. I just had this sneaking feeling that this film was going to be near the bottom of the rubric.
0: In certain parts, yes. Impact Significance, I had a six. Uh, I think it further cemented the careers of Ford and Wayne. And by that, I mean, it was another decent movie or decent entry in their long careers. I don't think it's mentioned by anybody as one of the best films collectively of either of their careers, but it is one of those that has to be noted because it had some awards acclaim and does attach to a best director. But we're going to get to the Oscars question later on in unanswered questions. It was a top 10 grossing film of that year, both in the U.S. and the U.K., so it was a appealable film with a more or less movie star. I don't think this was where John Wayne had gotten into some of his best acting performances quite yet. I think, honestly, the more he aged, the more he became an actor as opposed to a movie star, which at this point I think he was, and again... Ford, being the winningest director, it has have impact or significance on his career. It gives him kind of the freedom to do a little bit more of exploration, a little bit edgier movies, stuff that I think had a little bit more pop or zing. We covered Mr. Roberts, but another one that you and I love is The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. I don't think he has all the same freedoms to do something that's a little bit more out there as far as that without being able to win as many best directors. And while this, I don't think would be the one that you would claim is his best, best film of the best director recognized ones. I certainly think that him having four does give him a lot more leeway otherwise.
1: Oh, and part of the reason or part of the background of this, originally this was a William Wyler project and uh, uh, Republic said no, because Wyler had a, Uh, a reputation of being over budget and um, they weren't going to have it. So they removed him and put in Ford. You know, he also not only did it, he did it in relatively quick time for films at that era. And he, he was in budget. I actually had a little bit lower. I went with a 5.5. And the reason I went with that is because (laughs) I just have this feeling having Lived in a uh, machismo environment as a child. You know, my my dad and his friends. I could just see them going to see this film and coming out disappointed that there wasn't any Indians and there wasn't any shooting up of anything. And they're thinking like, well, what the hell's John Wayne doing? I mean, this is ridiculous. John, you know, i go to see John Wayne? I expect this, and this is not what it is.
0: Well, especially so, because of the name of the film being The Quiet Man, and it's how John Wayne's character doesn't want to fight anymore. I think that is telling to your point. Okay. What did you have down for novelty?
1: I went with a little higher. I had 7.5 because I thought this was – because it was really a – I couldn't go any higher – but it was a for republic films and at that time shot all on location and making uh the background of the country more central to the theme of the film the only other time ireland had been featured in a film like this was another john ford film how green was my valley and um that's in wales that's not ireland okay my mistake So, but I mean, that's, you know, I went with a little bit of novelty simply because of the location and filming on site as opposed to in studio and um, making the environment a key factor, key part of the film.
0: All of Ford's films use a lot of background environment and landscape in order to tell stories. That's why most of his films tended to be Western. So that, that doesn't particularly surprise me. It's just that this one was an unusual setting for him and for Wayne in this particular moment. I went and I went up a little bit while you were talking. So I'm going to go with a three, but I can't give it above that because I mean, realistically outside of it being in a different country, it was still an American movie. And The backlash to doing uh, American or non-American-centric movies, uh, this was in 1952. We're only five years out from Hamlet or Hamlet getting booed at the Oscars for winning Best Picture because it wasn't an American movie. (laughs) So, you know, it has some accents, but you still have to even put a little bit of an asterisk because Ford did do How Green is My Valley, which again, was a whale's tale, and I I don't mean that to be uh, rhyming or anything, but about whales and a story. Regardless, let's move on. Uh, (laughs) Because he'd kind of done a similar story, although that one's a much more sad, somber movie, telling about the the life or the difficulties of growing up in in a Welsh Uh, township that was all built on mining, as opposed to this was somewhat of a romantic comedy of sorts. I I really just don't see this as particularly novel per se, maybe to most of the rest of Wayne's films, although I haven't seen enough of Wayne's films to make that assessment completely. So it it just, I I don't see it. I I really don't. There, There wasn't anything that was breaking the mold, pushing the environment, anything else. And I just think that if we put everything above a five for novelty, then nothing is below a five. So occasionally you have to have something that pushes it back a little bit. This for me is is part of that. Okay. Do you want to go with your classicness score before I do mine? Because I have a feeling that you want to be heard, and I'm going to have much stronger feelings on
1: this one. It's a period piece. It reflects society at the time that it was portrayed. It's much different now, and it doesn't age the best, but it could have been a lot worse from that time frame. I mean, after all, this is a reaction on his part by her having her little – um her little temper tantrum and going off onto the train after the wedding or after the marriage was consummated uh, is a one-up of trying to get him to fight her brother for her dowry and uh, his reaction. So I went with a 4.5 because okay. it doesn't age the best, but I don't know if I'm going to have quite the vitral. Since we've been kind of leading up and building
0: to this point, this gets a straight one. <laughs> just from the period point, portion of this, so was it Coming Home that's the Bruce Dern film about him having PTSD and having violent outbursts due to his uh, previous war record? Is that the correct name of the movie? Uh, Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I had the reference correct. We changed tone in just the 20 years as to how PTSD was, because that's what John Wayne's character is going through. So you're taking a psychologically damaged person with a person who was forgotten is somewhat of an old maid and a throwaway, making them into a romantic couple and taking a humorous tone to all of their baggage and their damage, then putting it through the lens of toxic masculinity And trying to make it into a joke, there is almost nothing from any angle that ages well. And I mentioned it to you during the break here, but even the march scene where he's literally dragging her at times, he picks up and he carries her at times, and other times he's just marching with her, but it's certainly not an appealing scene. And I I had a hard time literally watching it. I sat there cringing and I'm like, please let this be over, please let this be over was not even the worst scene. The worst scene is their wedding night where he punches through a door in order to get access to her because he just can't stand the thought of not being in control of the situation. That is definition, classic behavior of toxic masculinity, that you have to be able to control the situation so much and then pick up and basically manhandle your wife, throw her into bed and prove you're the guy. I I have so many problems with this film just from a standpoint that it is so culturally out of touch that I couldn't do anything but give it a one. And even as I'm saying that, I don't want to – you know what? I'm going to give it a two, and I'm going to mark it up for this one reason. You said it couldn't be worse. The only thing I can think of below this, and this is the reason why I'm going to march it up. The only thing potentially more cringeworthy to me is going to be something like birth of a nation. So I have to leave or reserve space to be able to mark that lower. And because of that, I will give this a two. But that is the only thing that I'm putting below that.
1: Well, okay, let's let's point out where things could have gone. He could have forced himself. Uh, on the wedding night he didn't okay that would have been within the realm all right it would have been legally his right to as in ireland at that time and there would have been absolutely no ramifications in fact the church would have supported him okay number two he uh there's not scenes of him striking her yes he drags her and such but this this is a technique or a situation that is long used i mean the reason that it makes so much sense is she's the one who suggested earlier that he just walk the five miles himself on her behalf and she was all gung-ho about it and he said no and whatever oh okay. that's the part that makes this the worst of this overall is
0: not that it's that whole scene build-up but somehow that that's an endearing quality that he dragged and manhandled her. She likes him more and accepts him for who he is because he finally uh, decided that he was going to be a tough guy. I it, I think it undercuts her
1: entire character to that point. Think about this as being not very far off from the, uh, the climactic scene in pillow talk, another film we've reviewed where he take her doris day carries her through the streets of new york in her uh electric blanket
0: i suppose you you have a point on all of those and i'll even acquiesce a little bit but it's just i i, I remember watching that and i'm like this was in a movie really a popular one and okay. i just i i i know we're going through a discussion Call me the canceler-in-chief, if you want, of the show. I, I don't really give a fuck. But I, I just can't, in good conscience, condone this and the tone they took to represent what was going on in the film. It just, to me, he seemed like a threatening bully that created a, or was trying to instill a certain level of fear in his wife. And to me, that just is not going to sit well. It
1: never will. See, and I've had this conversation with people before, and when I was a kid, you know you knew who the racists were. they were pretty open and and uh clear about their intent. um I find those that are able to cloister it and hide it to be much more insidious than Absolutely. those who are just open about it, and uh, they, they do much more damage and well, one thing you can say you can say about this film is that in this particular case his sexism and his d- male dominance come through pretty loud and clear and you know where everybody stands there are a lot of films if we were to pick them apart and uh, specifically identify the fe- the male dominance and the female subservience are much more subtle and probably damaging in the long run so i don't think you can just paint this because it was so overt in that light there are i think pretty much any film prior to about 1995 is going to have a certain aspect of this
0: all right you've made some very astute and excellent points i will again accede to pretty much all of them in some concept or another but I don't think I'm going to necessarily change my score other than what I already have. Cause I think I've come up a little bit. In fact, I'll, all right, I'll go up to a two and a half just to give myself a little bit more room. I think again, we're trying to come up with the spectrum of things just generally. So that's going to change the score overall for this. The one thing I'll say is, is okay, you've now thrown down the gauntlet and said, if we're going to call out the overt racism or sexism, chauvinistic nature of things, we now have to try and find the subtleties too.
1: I think at least that's extent- how I'm going to apply the standard. Okay. And that's fine. And I've pointed out, I mean, we did that last week when we did aliens. And I pointed out that they just couldn't leave Sigourney Weaver to be a badass woman. She had to have a mother instinct.
0: Oh no, I I most definitely agree with where you went with that. It was not something that I even perceived, but I think it was a good find by you. And that's what I'm saying is I, I agree with exactly what you're going. I just think it puts a bigger barrier or onus on us to try and figure out, because again, this is not the point of that. I think this movie shouldn't be watched. In fact, just the opposite. But I think people should be able to draw their own conclusions and see where this is coming from if they can have an educated discussion on this like you and I can. I still think that Gone with the Wind has value to be able to talk about, discuss, and figure out. But it's not something that should be seen or uh, just lionized for what it once was, but rather as a moment in time discussed. That doesn't mean it ages Uh, less well, it means that we have to hold it by the same scope, but talk about it appropriately. It's not that we're dismissing history, but talking about it more honestly and appropriately than we once did.
1: Well, I can tell you right now, when we get to Gone with the Wind, I'm probably at a two in this category.
0: Well, and and with some very good reason. And that's why I want to maybe build in a little leeway, leeway, but I think part of my point was made, and even then I've still come back a little bit. So rewatchability, I'm going to struggle with this now after the discussion. I came up with my original number. I'm rethinking it here in the moment, so why don't you go first, and I'll I'll see where I stand after I've heard your argument, since you kind of changed my mind a little bit on the last one.
1: This is one where if it's on and somebody else is watching it, they'll sit and watch it. Am I going to turn it on if I see it on? Not really. It wasn't something that I'm, you know, I may go the rest of my life with never seeing it again. Um, so I have to give it under the air or the middle point. So I went with a 4.5. The first hour
0: of this movie was fine to me. I thought it was, it worked fine as a classic movie. I wouldn't have had a problem rewatching it. It kind of was subtle and small and was kind of a building action. Obviously, where I had the problem was the last half hour, 45 minutes of this movie, and that brings it down for me. I would have said this is probably in the category of a four, which is what I gave Aliens last week, because it's below the passive, like, I'm neutral on this, uh, that this is one I probably would actively not watch because that last 45 minutes was so cringy to me at times. And I'd have difficulty sitting through that. So, yeah, I could maybe sit through the first hour, but then what's the point? Like, (laughs) okay, it's not like it's not like one movie where you can just skip a scene. That's so crucial to the kind of how the movie works and ends and the plot resolution that you can't really skip over it. So I'm I came up for my original score, but I think I still need to go with something like a three point five. Okay. So to recap. We have 5.5 average for Legacy. We had a 5.75 average for Impact Significance. We had a 5.25 average for Novelty. We had a 3.5 average for Classicness. We had a 3.5 average for Rewatchability. And the Google score was 88%. 91% for Rotten Tomatoes, which would have been much higher than I thought either of those would have been, but that averages out to a 8.95. So that comes out to an overall score of 32.45. So does that put it on the bottom of the list? I'm not sure it does. Really? I'm pretty sure it's at least above one movie. Greatest Show on Earth? Yep, that's exactly right. It's above the greatest show on earth, which happened to be the Best Picture winner of this same year. Beat it out for Best Picture. Uh, It's just below the help.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay.
0: So, just for context's sake, it, it is near the bottom. Not something I would have thought going in, but understandable nonetheless. All right. So that takes us to remaining questions. I have three of them. How many do you have?
1: I had just one.
0: All right, so I'll go first, and I'll kind of weave mine in. How many punches can two men take while still being able to stand? Good God. (laughs) They're just trading blows. I mean, you see boxers that are never the same for the rest of their careers that go into the center of the ring and just trade shots. And these guys are like landing roundhouse haymakers. I know it's done for a film, but there's no accuracy in that scene whatsoever.
1: <laughs> uh, go ahead with your next one.
0: Why was Innisfree and Wiedemorn like heaven? I, I think there might be somewhat of an answer, but, like, why do you describe it as such? You moved away from the country. Uh, this This is after the potato famine, right? Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. But Tato family was 1840s.
0: Well, right. But I mean, his family. So you would have assumed they would have moved in like the 1880s.
1: Possibly.
0: Because I think it was his father that moved away. So he was only like a first generation American, but he moved back. And I I guess I wonder why they built up home as much as they did. But I, I don't know. It just leaves me with a few more questions because usually, especially in that era, that late 1800s kind of era, that you get a lot of immigrants that kind of have a more historic or not historic, but I hate to continue to use the word lionized, but version of America as opposed to their original homeland. So okay. I, I maybe it's me not understanding the cultural reference points.
1: And you're going to have a very difficult time understanding this because you grew up in an environment where you got to travel and see things. There's a certain aura, uh, a certain mystic quality about certain places that either is positive or negative for some people because they've never experienced it. For me growing up, the... One place that I was the most afraid to go, because I just thought, oh, you know, it's just so overwhelming. It's more than I could ever imagine. And uh, I would be so minuscule within the context of that, New York City, until I went. And then it's like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's like any other city. It's just there's more there, and it's bigger. So, you know, since I've been there the first time, I've gone a lot. In fact, I really enjoy going, and I'm looking forward to the day when Broadway's back so that I can go back to Broadway and see some more plays, because I would do that every two or three years and and uh, go and just spend a long weekend and catch as many as I could. But that's what you're talking about. His parents built this place up as being this idyllic, you know, nirvana, and, you know, when he's he's troubled and he is down and out and he doesn't know what else to do, here's nirvana, his heaven. This is what his parents have talked about and that's what he's built up for. You're a little more sophisticated. You would realize that there is no such thing as nirvana. I, I'm not sure if that was a compliment or not. I'm going to try to take it as one anyway it wasn't an insult and it wasn't a compliment it's just reality well sometimes people see
0: sophisticated as being somewhat of a dig anymore which is a little
1: troubling but all right anyway what was your remaining question just that in central ireland the the whole concept of the protestants versus the catholics it was predominantly a catholic country and the, the vicar and you know, I, I didn't think about the fact that uh, they were trying to have Protestant parishioners and followings in the middle of Ireland. I mean, the reason why there is a an Ireland and a North Ireland now is predominantly because of the location of the Protestants within the country when uh, Ireland uh, pursued their own uh, independence in the early 20th century and divided the country along – religious lines so I guess that was my question is is I, I guess I was not aware of the real issue with the vicar or what was going on and what ultimately happened if that was continued to be yeah they don't really do a great job
0: of explaining and I it was a thought I had I guess I missed it in thinking about what my questions would be but why there was a father and then there was a vicar. And I guess you picked up on that and I didn't, that they were Catholic versus Protestant. I assumed everything was Catholic. No. I guess not. The last question I had, and it's one we've kind of already covered, but our bottom two films at this point now, we've mentioned are The Greatest Show on Earth, at least to this current iteration of the list, and now this movie. And they were both up for Best Picture, one over a movie that is in our top five and at one point was our number one, High Noon, and was the year where they didn't even nominate Singing in the Rain. Is (laughs) 1952 at the Oscars one of the worst possible Oscar votes ever?
1: Uh, It could very well
0: be. I mean, it's not like the other films other than High Noon and Singing in the Rain were other ones that I I clamor over, and I I think it was like a huge mistake where I can understand maybe how they picked between like four really good films, and okay, you know, even in the Rocky year, you could say that Rocky winning over Network and All the President's Men and uh, a couple of other movies that I'm, I'm drawing a blank on at the moment, but was like a mistake, but. Rocky's not a terrible film in context of that time and for what it was. It's now kind of become undercut by all of the jokes following and the franchisey nature of it now. If it had been a standalone film at the time, you probably understand it a little bit better. But I can definitely make an argument for Rocky winning over those films than I can for either of these movies somehow finishing above High Noon and Singing in the Rain. And I, I, not to mention that Singing in the Rain wasn't nominated for a single thing.
1: (laughs) Uh, I I guess I didn't remember that, but, and the thing even with Rocky is is having grown up in that time frame, Rocky became a phenomenon. I mean, it won Best Picture, not necessarily because of the film, but just the fact that it touched culturally with people who were down and out and forgotten people of, of society And it just seemed to have a phenomenon about it that built up and spoke to a lot of people. And so I think just the sheer gravitas of the film in society and culturally was a huge impact of why it ended up winning Best Picture.
0: Well, I don't want to relitigate that one. If you want to see our Rocky take, go back to episode three from early last year. But uh, for where we're at right now, I think that's a wrap on this particular episode. This is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing Idiocracy, currently streaming on VOD, so you won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our sh- music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider
1: and distributor is Anchor